This is I Choose Life News and Views, sponsored by Indiana Right to Life and Right to Life of Northeast Indiana, committed to defending innocent human life for all people of all ages. Your hosts are Kathy Humbarger, Abigail Lorenzen, and Scott Kump. Welcome to I Choose Life News and Views. I'm Kathy Humbarger. I'm Abigail Lorenzen. And I'm Scott Kump. I Choose Life News and Views is produced by Bot Radio Network in Fort Wayne in cooperation with Indiana Right to Life as well as Right to Life of Northeast Indiana. A Merry Christmas to all of you. It's so happy to say those words every year. And we have with us today to talk a little bit about Christmas and the Christ child, and maybe some about Advent and the expectation of that child, Dr. Michael Eschelbach. If any of you have been longtime listeners of our program, that name may sound familiar because Eschelbach was my last name. So this is my dad that I have on the program with me today, um, which always adds a fun element for me as the interviewer. But glad to have you joining us today, Dr. Eschelbach. Very glad to be joining you today, Abby. Dr. Eschelbach is currently a professor in Christ College at Concordia University, Irvine. This is his seventh year teaching there. But before that was a professor at Concordia University in Chicago. And before that was a pastor of an LCMS church, multiple churches, actually, as you had a couple of different calls there for 15 years working as a parish pastor. So lots of experience doing Advent messages and Christmas messages. Um, and I'm interested to hear what you have to share with us today. Is there anything else that you want to let the listeners in on as far as who you are and the experience that you have sort of pouring into your message today? Well, sure. Thanks for a great open question there. First thing I think I'd like to share is just the value. Of course, being a parish pastor is provides incomparable opportunities, especially over 15 years, to both have reason to search the scriptures to see if these things are so and to really mine them for answers to questions that people have in real situations. So emergency rooms and funeral homes and family crises and meltdowns and all kinds of things, those are the real human situations that the Lord caused his scriptures to be written to address. That's the one of the great values of special revelation, which is the Bible, besides nature itself as God's revelation, to um, speak very directly to lots of the most challenging uh, human experiences. And then to add on top of that, so 21 years of classroom work, which is really fantastic because it's not just so many hours a week that challenges come that Christian theology needs to address or respond to, but really five, six, seven, eight hours a day, um, three days a week or more with, uh, you know, each semester I have around 120 students with lots of questions and pushing back in lots of ways that has been a fantastic refiner's fire and to have, you know, God's word to us by way of my reading of it in Greek and Hebrew, which I'm also grateful for that ability. Um, it's been the crucible. So these days I'm talking to my students about how do you know an anvil? And um, most of them don't know what an anvil is. So I show them a picture of an anvil and I tell them what it's for, you know. And of course, they don't really know how you test for an anvil. And I said, well, you pound on it with a hammer. And that's actually what I'm showing you during the course of a semester is an anvil. And you're not only welcome to pound on it, I'm requiring you to pound on it 
So by the end of the semester, you have, a, I think, a new experience for you, and that is to have considered truth or mm-hmm. as close as we can get to the truth, and how you would know that is because it endures. And, of course, that has everything to do with what we're talking about today because Christmas is the fulfillment of, oh, gosh, at least four, five, six thousand years of God making promises to his people uh, that find fulfillment um, in the incarnation of his son. I guess one other thing, and um, I think you asked me to do this, is just to talk about the Concordia University systems. Yes. Concordia University, Irvine is not the only Concordia, it's one of eight Concordias. And uh, I think besides the gospel, this was probably the second best kept secret uh, in human history, which is <laughs> like the gospel, really sad, for two reasons. Um, one is, I think actually we might be better known to non-LCMS Lutherans yeah. than we are inside, right? So we get lots of students who come to us because we have a pretty powerful reputation for being a place where it's safe for you to come and bring what you thought you knew and bring your own religious convictions with you. But you're, you know, you're allowed to test our religious convictions and we're allowed to ask you questions about yours. Um, Respectfully, of course, you know, we love the human family because God does and we are sympathetic with people's past and backgrounds, which determines what they come to the classroom with, but we're very collaborative both throughout the faculties and then between faculty and student in the classroom. So this is back to that common pursuit of truth, which is how I explain to students in the first place what it means to be Lutheran. Mm. Like Luther was totally a truth no matter what guy, which is why he nailed theses on the church door and why he eventually was excommunicated and why this is a fun fact in Christian history, why when he was translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into German so everybody could read it, the Pope put a contract out on him. Mm. You know, those were the good old days where uh, religious leaders would actually put a hit order on you. If they <laughs> Nowadays, you just get excommunicated or you know, maybe ignored. (laughs) Back in the day, people took this more seriously. So anyway, Concordia University system, but still, for Lutherans, and especially Missouri Senate Lutherans, we are the place um, that's also devoted to preparing church workers and just plain, well-equipped lay people. So, you know, Luther wanted everybody to be as equipped in theology as possible. That's why he wrote the catechisms. That's why Lutherans have historically established schools. Um, If we're going to be ambassadors for Christ and the light in the world, then we need to live in that light. And and that's what we are devoted to doing in the Concordia universities. And in so far as we're about that, we also try and prepare leaders for the church by um, Lutheran teachers, DCEs, deaconesses, we do pre-sem work here. We teach students Greek and Hebrew. And interestingly enough, recently, other churches, uh, both Lutheran and non-Lutheran, are starting to send their their um, students to us for pastoral training. Interesting. Yeah, that's quite a, an affirmation of confidence about who we are and what we do is that other church bodies would say, well, it is, it should be the Bible above all else. And if you're going to get to know the Bible as well as you can, uh, we think that Concordia Irvine is a great choice for you. 
Nice. That is a positive message to have broadcasting out about your school. <laughs> Everybody's going to come here now. Good. Everybody, it's going to be flooding yeah. through the gates. That's perfect. Yeah. Bring it on. And it's a beautiful campus to boot. It is a beautiful campus. So are the others, by the way. I don't want to leave them behind. Uh, my years at Concordia were Chicago were fantastic and had the best of colleagues there. My oldest daughter, Abby's older sister, went to Mequon. Um, well, she came here first, but then did her three years at Mequon and had great experience there. I grew up in Ann Arbor, where there's another Concordia. Um, I visited the one in Texas and have friends there. They're great. I have friends now who are at Seward, Nebraska. One of my best colleagues ever, uh, Dr. John Nunes, he's the president of Concordia Bronxville, St. Paul's Concordia. I have friends there and colleagues who, who grew up and went through that Concordia. So wherever you are and whatever your particular interests are, you should know, though, that there are Concordias not that far away that are devoted just like we are to um, the truth no matter what. Yeah, I went to CUC. It's great. You should check it out. So the Christmas program every year, I like to leave up to our pastor, professor, guest. So this year, you, Dr. Eschelbach, um, what you'd like to address, because I think a lot of us hear sort of similar things every year from the pulpit, um, but there's so much to be dug out of Advent and the nativity. And especially when we're connecting it into the pro-life movement, there's all sorts of wealth there that if we just keep on digging into the Bible, we find more and more significance. So I like to leave this interview very open-ended for my guest. So Dr. Eschelbach, I will let you start us on our little journey here. Wonderful. Well, thanks for a wide open space here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the season that precedes Christmas itself, which is called Advent. And um, the ENT makes it easy to compare Lent and Advent, although they're a little bit different. Um, so both Lent and Advent historically were penitential seasons. And that just means that um, in Lent, we took 40 days in Advent, not quite as long about three or four weeks, four weeks of Advent to sort of slow everything down in our lives and take a long, serious look at how our life is going and whether that life is on the path or the trajectory that the life of Christ would accomplish in us. So are we really people of the word or are we still too much people of the world and so distracted and kind of flying off into the abyss here, the cold and dark of space. So we want to kind of, um, like I said, slow down, and we want to prepare so we don't miss what the gift is in Christmas. Sometimes that slowing down, actually for us, I think, is just a matter of let's see if we can back out of or push back out of Christmas. All of those kind of human inventions distractions and interests that get in the way. So I think for a lot of people, there's some anxiety and a, like a trepidation about, oh my gosh, here comes Christmas again. That means, you know, all kinds of planning and all kinds of searching for what to give people. And it's really a burden rather than a blessing. And it's almost like, you know, sometimes I've seen even, you know, later on Christmas Day, all the trees are out on the curb and, you know, the garbage cans is like, man, we couldn't wait for this to be over. Yeah. Now we can relax and wait for the Super Bowl, which is really, you know, that's the fun part of this. So 
You know, it's okay. In fact, it's better than okay, right? To kind of reserve this time of year for doing less rather than more. And what's interesting, I think, is the powerful and positive witness that makes to friends and family. It's okay to say, you know what, this year... I'm not going to give as many gifts as I did. Or this year, how about if I make you, you know, a batch of cookies rather than go shopping for you for something? And my own sister said this year, given the pandemic and all the upheaval and things, what if instead of trying to get each other something that we actually don't need um, from each other, what if we took the money that we were going to spend on each other and choose a charity and give it in that name? Good job, sister. I think that's a great idea. So uh, preparation, so less is more, those kinds of thoughts. And then also, and it's typical in Christian churches, is that we add a midweek service really devoted to that contemplative slowing down of and making space in your head and in your life to let the significance of what God did in Christmas kind of make its way in. The other thing about Advent that I want to mention is that the Christian church from antiquity has been on a cycle. So we have a one-year calendar, and it doesn't begin with January 1, because that's like, what difference does January 1 make? It starts with Advent, and so Advent comes right after the end of the church calendar, which is usually around Thanksgiving, and that's the end of the world. So kind of from Christmas through Easter, we're concentrating on the life of Christ and how that was all accomplished and fulfilled God's promises. And then from really Pentecost on, we're sort of rehearsing, we're practicing what the people of God look like as they anticipate the second coming of Christ. And then every year we kind of rev up for the second coming of Christ and we think about how people often assume it's not coming. Well, it's mm-hmm. not coming. There's, in fact, interestingly, Second Peter, in about the middle of the first century, said, I know that people think he's not coming. They say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything just keeps going on like ever. I don't think he's coming. And so we look at passages like that, and then for how many years now, 40-some years, every night before the last Sunday of the church year, I kind of listen, like, Okay, is he coming? Is he coming? <laughs> Sometimes windy, and I think, oh boy, he's coming. And I don't have to go to church tomorrow morning because it's going to be too late. But nope, they didn't come. And so we come through the end of the church year, and it's easy for people's minds to go, see, I didn't think he was coming, and he didn't come. Especially during COVID year, I thought for sure he was going to come this year. Nope. That would have been too easy. <laughs> I know, right? It's not the end of the world, everybody. So what, what is Advent but a response to that? So the beginning of the church year is kind of seamless with the end of the church year to say, well, a lot of people for four or five, 6,000 years thought he wasn't coming. So in the Genesis text, right after God promises that through the seed of the woman, he will save his people, Eve in her first conception and birth says, I have gotten a man, the Lord. She's like, okay, cool. We made a wreck of things, and God promised to send a Savior, and I have my firstborn son. Bam, there he is. Here we're on our way. Well, that was Cain, and that didn't work out. Um, so all through history, people were thought, oh, this is it. Now this is it. And even like with David and Solomon, now we have it. Um, and even Isaiah getting so specific about a virgin conceiving, that's like 750 years before Jesus actually comes. But he did come. 
And that's the beauty of it. Um, Paul's text in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so we'll also notice as we listen to or read through these Advent Christmas texts, there's so much interface with the sanctity of life and pro-life movement, like that word adoption, the Galatians text. So God does regenerate us, so we are genuinely, organically his own children, but referencing our human nature and its condition, God uses the language of adoption. But that's a powerful fact, that there are so many people, in fact, Last time I checked, right, more people waiting to adopt children than children aborted every year. So it's not like these children are unwanted. So we're getting, we're revving up to really um, anticipating the significance of the birth of Jesus, which is significant through the course of time. It's eternally significant. So just like Jesus did come, and it happened, and now that's already 2,000-some years past, He'll come again. You don't have to. God's not slow concerning his promises, but he's patient, not willing that any should perish. And that's a powerful truth to know about God. He's patient. He's not slow. So um, about the birth of Jesus itself, I wanted just to talk through some of the texts that really interface with this kind of a year when there's been so much trouble in so many different ways, but especially concerning the, this COVID business. So You know, it starts with Joseph assuming that Mary has established a relationship with a different man. And so we start with sympathy for what Joseph must have gone through emotionally and and spiritually, psychologically. And it's a beautiful text there that says, but being a just man, as God is, like a, a justice that's a function of a gracious, loving attitude, was determined not to embarrass her publicly, and so he was going to divorce her, which is not what he wanted to do. There's two words for wanted there, and this is the one where I'd I'd love an alternative, but I don't see one, so he's going to divorce her quietly. And then, of course, the Lord intervenes. Not Joseph. The Son is mine. The Son of God fulfilling uh, the promises to send his son by a virgin, and that happens to be Mary. Okay, well, next thing that happens, of course, is that relationship now, Mary and Joseph, Joseph the caretaker, even though it's God's son, is interrupted with Caesar's decree. The emperor of Caesar, the reverse of a stay-at-home order, was a leave-your-home <laughs> order to go register. <laughs> I think Mary would have loved a stay-at-home order. That'd be great, but nope. And so here's a nine-month pregnant young lady and Joseph have to make their way on foot and by donkey um, a pretty significant distance by those means to Bethlehem in order to satisfy the command of the emperor. And it gets worse, right? So, of course, all the hotels are booked, and there's nowhere for Mary to deliver, and the time has come, so they have to settle for likely a cave. That's the most common um, stable in those days, and there's there's nothing to wrap this newborn child in except clothes that they had with them and nowhere to lay him except in the manger, so a a trough where you put food for the animals. But no complaining about that. That's part of God's witness that who has he come for? You know, the most high and mighty, powerful, genuinely powerful being in the universe, being God, when he chooses to come to us, he does not choose to mix it up with the other high and mighty people 
with the privileged and advantaged and those people who have so much money that they can isolate themselves from what the rest of the population does. But Jesus, from the very onset, puts himself in the very lowest of places so that we all know that he's here for us and that he's approachable. How approachable? That's the next episode here with the shepherds. So who does God, at the time of the birth of Jesus, who does he announce it to in particular? The lowest people on the economic scale. So, you know, nobody dreamed about being a shepherd in those days. They're not wealthy people, and their livelihood is always at risk, which is why they're out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks. They don't spend all year long in the fields, all night long keeping watch, but they do at this time of year because it's lambing time and sheep have a horrible reputation for being really bad at delivering lambs <laughs> and keeping yeah, keeping them alive. They're like, what? So the shepherds have to be there because if we lose the lambs, then you got nothing. We, lose, yeah, we lose our future. And I think that's an important perspective for humanity when we think about protecting lives, because if we lose the next generation, then we lose our own future. And especially, I talk with my students about not just the right to life, but the value of life. Mm -hmm. And I want them to think about how many people are not here who may have actually had the answer to lots of problems that we still can't figure out. Maybe there was a future president that someone aborted who would have helped us with homelessness, or maybe there were people like, you know, scientists of the past who made these breakthroughs like penicillin and so forth, who would have much more quickly by now discovered and provided us with a vaccine for COVID. And it, the list goes on and on. So these shepherds are like, wow, we have been announced the birth of a lamb of God, which is infinitely more valuable than what we're waiting for here. In fact, it takes fears and stresses we have about lambing really off the table because God has provided us with a life that's invulnerable. So, of course, they hurry up and go, and they visit the baby in the manger, and there's lots of rejoicing going on. And what's interesting here is they go back to the dark night and the cold and the watching for the lambs under the Roman Empire and really still under the oppression of the Pharisees and Sadducees as they were enforcing their own idea of what Judaism was on the people. So lots of guilt and lots of fear about the wrath of God and, and not being saved. And so it says they talked to people on their way back to the fields about what they had seen and heard. And so I like people to think about what changed for the shepherds. And the answer is nothing and everything. I think some people are disappointed sometimes when they learn the gospel or hear about Christ, and then all of a sudden their life didn't turn into a you know, Disney world. But that's not to be expected. What we discover in God is a remedy for our human nature, for our fears and for our desires and for our disappointments. Not necessarily the fulfillment of the appetites of the flesh, but a resolution to that, something more powerful than those appetites and desires, and that is the peace and the rest that comes with a soul that's connected with its Redeemer. And then, of course, we could talk about the wise men coming and Herod, and of course, this is an obvious intersection with right to life, and Herod's slaughter of the innocent two-year-olds and infants in Bethlehem. And 
just is so important because besides the busyness and the shopping and all of that of Christmas time for a lot of people, it's a dreaded season because they have a sense of obligation to be happy this time of year, but they're not because of divorces or death or illnesses. There's all sorts of things, joblessness that seemed like this is a terrible time of year, not the best time of year. But the birth of Jesus means that none of those human tragedies and difficulties and hardships are all there is to our life. There's something more important, something more powerful. Um, it's sort of like feeling like my, my life is desert dry and there's no hope like Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. But then comes this flood of truth and reality and the fulfillment of God's promises. And this is not something that God requires of us or obliges us to do, like, get happy because I'm coming and I want a happy crowd at church. It's like, no, I'll give you reasons to be not just happy but joyful. I did a chapel here at Concordia last spring about the difference between happy and joy, and mm-hmm. that's kind of centered on these nativity narratives. And there's a difference between the two. Joy is because of what's happened, and that's a function of God fulfilling his promises, not only to us, but in us, in our lives. That's God's work. And then happy is kind of like joy, except it's in spite of our circumstances. And what's fantastic is that God gives us both. So the happiness is sort of a soul's perspective on the difficulties of a physical life in a fallen and failed and very hostile world. But the joy is the proper function of a soul that lives in the promises of God, promises that were fulfilled in the incarnation of his son, which we celebrate every year and fulfilled again in the substitution of the life of that son under the law that we see climaxing on Good Friday. And especially with those words, the last words of Jesus, tetelestai, or it has been and remains finished, and then he yields up his spirit, and then you get this flood of grace and goodness that flows from Easter into our lives. And that's what carries us through the course of time and seasons like this. So I have a website. It's called Word Without Walls, all one word jammed together, Word Without Walls. If you go there, you will see different tabs that will refer you to podcasts where I spend lots of time on lots of different subjects like this. There's also a place there, a tab called Daily Bread. I send a few Bible verses every day to people who want me to. And usually there's a little note below, a little explanation or application of the significance of those words. There's a place there to click on if you want to send a question to me that I'll answer. And then those get posted on the website. So there's lots of resources there to help with questions and just with the support of your Christian life. And I'm guessing you have a listing of all of your books somewhere on that Word Without Walls website. Right. There's a resource tab on there also. Lots of resources of every kind on there. If you don't see something you're looking for on there, you can always email me (laughs) and I'll help you find what you're looking for. Well, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate the message of hope, especially uh, in a year that has been really hard for a lot of people. So thanks for your time today, Dr. Ashelbach. Thank you for the opportunity. Happy to share Christmas with everybody that's listening. 
You've been listening to I Choose Life News and Views. If you have questions about this program or if you'd like to support the fight for life, please call 260-471-1849 or go to ichooselife.org because without the right to life, no other rights matter.